Join us on Facebook Live for a Friday afternoon if you have the time and the inclination, because it is, of course, Marshy movie time. So, James Marsh, good day, mate. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Good, good. A few things to get into today, actually. Where do you want to start? Yeah, there is a lot. Uh, we have what what is going to be a bit of a talking point. We've got the um, Netflix documentary Jimmy Savile, a British horror story. Yeah. To get into, there's also a new HBO drama series called Tokyo Vice, mm-hmm. based on the uh, the famous novel, well not novel, but memoir, whatever. Uh, Vengeance is mine. All others pay cash. Yeah. Indonesian uh, indie action romance. And also Richard Linklater's latest rotoscoped animated nostalgia folly, um, Apollo 10 and a half. Rock on. So I thought we would start with just a few words about Jimmy Wang Yu, who was, a, you know, quite an influential figure in the Hong Kong film industry in the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. and, uh, but who sadly passed away earlier this week uh, mm. in Taiwan. Um, so he was he was really sort of the first big martial arts star or, or like Kung Fu star. Uh, the late 60s, it was all sort of Shaw Brothers style, Wu Sha, sort of classical weapons-oriented uh, martial arts movies. And through a couple of films, basically he had a couple of hits kind of back-to-back at the end of the 60s. Uh, the one-armed swordsman, yeah. followed by Chinese boxer. And Chinese boxer uh, was kind of the first big movie to do away with all that, all that old-fashioned stuff, do away with all the weapons, and really focus on hand-to-hand combat, kung fu, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was a massive, massive hit. Made him the biggest um, action star in Asia. He, uh, he, I think he had four movies in a row that became like the biggest movie of all time in, in Hong Kong or whatever. Hmm. Uh, Chinese boxer, first movie to make a million dollars, first local movie to make a million dollars at the Hong Kong box office. And really he's the one that opened the floodgates to uh, the likes of, well, Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and all the rest of it, yeah. who, you know, rather ironically uh, rushed in and um, essentially eclipsed him. Really, you know, he, he kind of kicked the doors open, popularized sort of uh, Kung Fu, you know, no weapons, hand-to-hand martial arts, and then was usurped by everybody who jumped on the bandwagon and then turned out to be better than him. So he, um, you know, he, he ended up, he had a bit of a rocky personal life. He ended up uh, sort of disappearing from our screens for about 20 years, but then popped up towards the end of his life in the Peter Chan film Wuxia, opposite Donnie Yen, which is kind of an homage to One-Armed Swordsman in a bit, and he plays like the villain in that at the end. Uh, and then he was in a Taiwanese movie called Soul. Very, very different kind of movie, more like a horror movie, where he plays like an elderly guy who lives in the woods, and uh, his son shows up, and uh, murderous hijinks ensue. Right. Uh, uh, but yeah, you know, he was... Yeah, he had a kind of checkered reputation, he was uh, not always the best, easiest person to work with, by all accounts. Uh, had a couple of very high-profile marriages and divorces. Uh, he was at one point um, charged with murder in Taiwan, but the case was dropped because of lack of evidence. But you know, his legacy on screen sort of remains intact. I think you know he did, like I said, one-armed swordsman, Chinese boxer. He he was he also directed himself. He took control of the of the projects as much as possible. He kind of merged those two ideas together 
to make um, a film called uh, The One-Armed Boxer. What, what's the film that right now all the real fans are going to be saying, yeah, but then that was that? What would it be? Well, I think it's, I think it's these three, really. One-Armed Swordsman, Chinese Boxer, and then One-Armed Boxer. All right. Uh, which all came in kind of quick succession. I mean, he did other stuff. He was in Golden Swallow opposite Tempeh Pei, uh, which is another big, which was deemed like too violent by, uh, I think it was Variety back in the, yeah. the late 60s. Uh, he, another film that he's in that's a lot of fun is one of these exploitation oh, uh, right. Australian movies yeah. called The Man from Hong Kong. Yeah, you loved that. I remember you having a big thing about that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a great movie. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's very, like a lot of these Australian movies where there were kind of like no rules and they do whatever they want. It's all a bit rough around the edges, but it's all built around a lot of really high profile um, daredevil stunt work, essentially. And so in this one, he plays sort of an inter- he plays a Hong Kong cop who has to go to uh, Australia to pick up a, a, a drug dealer, which is played by Sammo Hong, if I remember rightly. And then he gets he, he goes head to head with George Lazenby, who is a uh, <laughs> is an Australian kingpin. And, you know, they go back and forth between Hong Kong and between Australia. And there's lots of crazy stunt work going on and lots of ridiculous dialogue and out- outrageous performances. But that's a really fun one if people want to dig that one out. I remember our mate Jared Watt went bananas about this. He was plastering the poster for that movie all over any social media. He's like, yeah, mate, yeah, mate, in other words. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not surprised. It's It's one of those ones that people come back to again and again and again. You know, there's a few... Of those Australian movies, I mean, Mad Max is yeah, yeah. sort of the the biggest movie, the biggest sort of breakout here. That, but um, the Man from Hong Kong sort of I think displays kind of the best and the worst of that whole era in one ridiculous package. Uh, I think the other one uh, worth mentioning is Master of the Flying Guillotine, <laughs> which was a sequel to One Arm Boxer. Uh, yeah, to One Arm Boxer. Or so, so it's it's called One Arm Boxer versus the flying versus the Master of the Flying Guillotine in some places. Yeah, but I think in the US it's definitely it's best known as Master of the Flying Guillotine. I, th- I think you've and peaked a bit of interest here because uh, Steve, hi, hello, he hi said, Steve. He says a Hong Kong film with James Bond, George Lazenby. Need to see it. Well, they yeah, there you go. Yeah, George Lazenby playing a villain in a international spy caper. <laughs> yeah. Is uh is well doing, and if I remember rightly, not to kind of spoil it or anything, but there's a scene in it when he, um, is his character is kind of ca- is set on fire, and I'm pretty sure George Lazenby did that himself, and uh, he was because he was known to, certainly when he was well, James money. Bond, in, right, surely on a Majesty's Secret budget, Service. Budget stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Cut corners wherever you can with yeah. this kind of film. <laughs> yeah, and Lazenby certainly when he was when he was Bond, he tried to do as many of his own stunts as okay. possible. So um, I'm pretty sure, yeah, he set, he got himself set on fire at one point in that movie. Fair play. And, and it went a little bit awry. But then that's that was the kind of par for the course for this kind of film. But yeah, Master of the Flying Guillotines became a kind of grindhouse classic for many, many, many years uh, and features a, a huge array of different fighting styles in it. It's basically built around a, a martial arts tournament and a uh, an evil assassin who has the flying guillotine, which is this bizarre frisbee yo-yo slash helmet thing that you throw at people and it lands on their head spikes come out pointing inwards and cut people's heads off right. it's, it's very silly but it's uh it's a lot of fun so yeah i just wanted to uh tip uh, doff our caps to uh to jimmy wang you because uh he will be sorely missed yeah 
Nice one. Well done. Join us on Facebook Live. We'd love to hear what you have to say, especially if you're a, f- uh, a fan of these kind of martial arts grunge uh, gigs that he's on. Grindhouse, about. Grindhouse movies. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was a mainstay of that of that period, and like I said, paved the way for some of the greats to, who followed it. So uh, from one Jimmy to another, uh, let's talk about Jimmy Savile. There's a new documentary on Netflix called uh, Jimmy Savile, a British horror story. It's a two parter. Uh, each one is about an hour and a half long. And essentially, it it spends a lot of time setting up exactly who Jimmy Savile was, because, you know, it's impossible not to know who Jimmy Savile was if you're from England. But if you're not. Then I'm, I'm not sure how much you might know. What, you might watch have... the doco. Oh, 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 well, actually, this is what you're getting to, isn't it? Sorry, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, because it's yeah. Just to give you the bare bones of it, he was a, a broadcaster. He was a radio one DJ who became a television personality. Who became sort of the go-to charity fundraiser for the nation. He was hobnobbing with the royal family and with uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, and he divided his time equally between. You know, being the number one celeb on TV yeah. with the most family-friendly show imaginable, Jim, Jim will fix it, which I'm pretty sure I wrote into at least once. And um, and then he volunteered at all these different hospitals across the country and was a strange, eccentric figure from his Wurzel Gummidge-style haircut to his ridiculous glasses and outfits that he used to wear, these massive cigars that he smoked all the time, you know, back when you could smoke cigars on TV, presenting a kid's show and all sorts, um, and was just generally a bit weird. But was because he had been embraced so wholeheartedly by, um, you know, the powers that be, if you like, he was re- regaled as kind of our nation's slightly strange uncle. And then only really after he died, did it all hit the fan, as it were, that he was not only, um, well, how do we put it? I mean, not only a serial paedophile, but, you know, according to some accounts, it went into truly terrifying and horrific corners of debauchery and depravity. Uh, and it was it landed with such a bombshell in the UK that for many years, I think a lot of people ref- simply refused to believe it. And because it all came out around the time that he died, when, you know, the, the TV was full of tributes to him yeah. and, you know, Prince Charles wrote a, a state, an official statement and um, Margaret Thatcher had eulogized him. And there'd been this huge memorial service that was like a state funeral for him. And they all had a massive you know, the- doll moment didn't they and then it was just a it was just this massive sort of whoops because all these stories finally came out that for his entire life essentially certainly from like i think the 1950s onwards yeah there were first-hand accounts of awful awful terrible terrible things that have been going on and there are like 400 more than 400 lines of inquiry the police were investigating at the end and uh, yeah, it just it blindsided the nation. People just did not, couldn't, could not fathom the how he had got away with it for so long without it ever really coming up. Um, People were saying, I mean, this is just again, if you come from that part of the world, you're going to know this. But there's all hmm. sorts of accounts of stars saying they all knew it was going on. So well, many what accounts. The docu- what, yeah, yeah. I mean, what the documentary does is it does suggest that. 
at you know at the yes at the time that that people knew there were a number of interviews that he sat for where it's suggested that the interviewer knows or at least presses him on accusations of child molestation yeah uh, or even or even rape sexual abuse certainly but then he he's able to just divert the question bat it, bat it away with a witty aside or a wink to the audience and it's just dropped immediately investigations were put in um into act into motion but as soon as they hit the senior desk at the, at the police yeah the case was dropped. And the BBC, remember, they banned John Lydon for, for speaking out against Savile. Johnny Rotten, of course. Yeah, and I think the one thing that the documentary doesn't really do is get to the bottom of all of that. Okay. Because I think that um, those responsible are now either dead, retired, or still just desperately unwilling yeah. to speak up against him. You know, every, I think everybody has is now on the same page, and they are... In agreement that he was he was a monster. Yeah. You know, he went from being, you know, beloved by the nation to being reviled. And he is everybody I think everybody now believes what he what happened. But there is this but I think it would it would incriminate so many people yeah. at the highest levels of power that I don't think the truth is ever gonna fully come out over who knew what and how much was being uh dismissed, excused, tolerated. Yeah. Or just ignored. That whole thing comes back time and time again, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That whole deal about we all knew what was going on, da 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 da, and at the time, well, nobody said anything for what well. Is Hollywood, this is it, you know, and yeah, and this is obviously years before uh, you know the Me Too movement and Weinstein mm. and all that lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you don't only need to scratch below the surface of that to find how you know how many people were aiding and abetting or just ignoring it or living with it just or that, just rolling, rolling their eyes and kind of going, oh, Harvey, you know, that's what he was like. And the same with Jimmy Savile. I think a lot of people put up with it. And what, what, the, what the documentary does do very well is it combs back through 50 years of his public um, image and, and essentially does a supercut of every time where he made a, a comment that at the time was kind of laughed off or ignored as just being him being weird or making a slightly off-colour joke. But when they're all cut together, you, you see a pattern of behaviour, a pattern of behaviour that was kind of overlooked or kind of dismissed, where he, all, he regularly talks about picking up young girls and treating them badly and, and hurting them. And the fact that he's got... He, he makes his ongoing joke about, oh, yeah, next Thursday I've got... I, I'm due in court about this that or the other and he was you know it's, it's, it's like a running joke throughout his career that he was like oh yeah my case comes up next thursday <laughs> and everybody just laughs it off when it's like yeah that's really he's he's skirting so close that it's almost like he's flaunting it in the face of a, of the public uh who are just unwilling Which is weird, by the way that's a bit narcissistic yeah. isn't it it is but but i think what the what the documentary also establishes is that he had no life out off off camera right. he had no personal life to speak of whatsoever and it seems like the entire time he wasn't in the public eye he was you know doing awful things to young defenseless people mm. uh and there was so he there was nobody in his life to hold him accountable certainly nobody that he felt that he had to kind of lie to or hide from right and it just it just paints this Dev you know, this horrible, devastating portrait of 
just the, arguably the worst predator. Well, as I as I as I asked to come around in my high level blurb this morning, I said, "Yeah, this is you know this is going to get some tempers going." But bottom line, as a piece of art, is it any good? And and all I know is that a lot of people have said it doesn't do what it says on the tin, really. But you're the well. You're I know. I mean, I remember you mentioned this to me the other day I before did, yeah. I'd actually watched before I'd actually watched it. Uh, it's, it, what it certainly doesn't do is uh, it, basically is, is explore in in the detail that perhaps it could what all of the charges levelled against him were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it it sticks to a, you know the, a few individuals who have come out and are willing to speak on camera about how they were. Uh, abused, assaulted, harassed. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you know what some of the, I don't know whether to what to say and what not to say. But well, let's have a rest now. We've got to go to the news yeah. because obviously you've got some more to say about this. Just whilst we've got a couple of seconds here, I want to say hi to Greg. Completely different topic. Greg on Facebook says, okay. "Started watching Slow Horses at Marshy's recommendation. Thoroughly enjoying it. Gary Oldman is brilliant as ever. That's fair, isn't it?" We'll be back. Absolutely, in a, we'll yeah. Be... I've 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 managed to see all of it, and it's it's. Oh, let's great. come back to that it's in great. a bit as well. So, where were we? Oh, join us on Facebook Live. He's obviously got more to say about this, and we'd love to hear from you um, about this or anything else. Really, Morning Brew is our page, James. Uh, yeah. So we were we're talking about. Um, the new Netflix documentary, Jimmy Savile, a British horror story. Uh, and yeah, you, as I said, you, you mentioned it to me the other day that, that some people have said that it doesn't, it, it doesn't it go into detail about just, just, just it, let me throw something at you here. So yeah, I wonder, cause I know nothing about this. If the director's answer might be something like, yes, we're not out to nail the guy any more than he's already been nailed, but we want you to understand a little bit more of what was going on behind those eyes. And hopefully the two will meet in the middle, Maybe mm. something like that. Well, I mean, well, that's the great sort of enigma, the great sort of riddle of the whole thing. And, and of him, I think is, is trying to work out, you know, who was the real Jimmy Savile? You know what? What was making him tick, really? Because in a lot of all these inter- like archival interviews with him, that's what everybody really wants to know. They're like, "Who are you out of the public eye?" And he's always just dismissive of like, "Oh, I'm super boring. I don't do anything. I don't have a family. I don't go anywhere uh, because I'm always on the road." And again, he just deflects, 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 deflects. You know, the only person apparently he had any kind of meaningful, or certainly woman, he had any kind of meaningful relationship with was his mother. And uh, hello, and that's it. You know, he has this. He had this kind of image of being a sort of a playboy and all the rest of it. But for years and years and years, nobody could ever find anyone who was willing to step forward and say, "Yeah, I went out with him, or I had a date with him, or yeah, we spent the night together, or they, anything they ever, just there. ever." Yeah, okay. And I and it and it does suggest that he didn't ever have any kind of relationship other than. Um, the ones he's you know, remembered spon- for. A, yeah, a spontaneous, opportunistic, abusive ones. Yeah. You know, he worked at um, a, a young girls' re- sort of reform school uh, where, you know, uh, child criminals, fem- girls, child yeah, criminals yeah, yeah. Were, were kept. And he, he would go there and, quote, unquote, volunteer. And he'd end up sort of taking them out in his car and all the rest of it, you know, take you know, the fact that he was there at all, and the fact that he was able to take these girls who were essentially inmates out, and then he obviously he he was at Broadmoor, uh, you know, psychiatric, what would you call it, psychiatric prison hospital. We, we really kind of, get the picture here. I mean, 
you know so yeah <laughs> i don't want to go through it beat for beat for beat but a lot of people i think at the time a lot of people realized something was up and i think certainly in the as far as the general public went they thought well it, what it probably was is that he was gay ah. that was that was probably what the secret was and that's what everybody was hiding that's certainly why he was reluctant to talk about his personal life um and if and if only that had been it, then uh, you know there would have been nothing to worry about. Mm. However, but uh, no, it doesn't go into all the gory details of the extent of the horrifying things. But I don't think it needs to. Yeah, what are they looking for? I think that work. you know. Okay, what do you want? You know, it's horrifying as it is. Do I really need to hear first-hand accounts of? some of the most horrifying things. That yeah, I've all right then. Well, I'll begin where we sort of, uh, I'll end where we sort of begun. You say, when people say, James, is it any good? Are you going to say, yeah, or? Yes, yeah, and I think the the single best thing that it does is it takes the time to truly establish why everybody loved him so much. Interesting. You know, and that's, I think that's, that's incredibly important. Yeah. That's incredibly important for people, for audiences outside the UK, certainly. And it really takes that time, but then going through it with the with the foreknowledge, you know, with that twenty twenty hindsight, if you like, of of everything that he did, you can pick apart every little thing that he said. You know, a lot of the on stage, on screen stuff was, if you think about it, I, there must have been a team who knows absolutely brilliant. Jim will fix it. You know what? He was talking directly every Saturday evening to every nine, eight, seven year old directly every week yeah. that's insane yeah. and and it was the fact that it was um fully fully endorsed by the parents oh you bet as well. it was huge it was family viewing i mean it was huge for the kids absolutely no no questions asked and i i'm pretty sure i remember a couple of the clips that they show when it happened like there's a boy who jim will fix it for him to drive a motorbike through a ring of fire and i'm pretty sure i remember watching that one and going that's amazing i want to do that brilliant television um, it's yeah uh, the whole family would sit down. He said he got like 40 million viewers every um, every Saturday afternoon. No kidding. We better move on. I mean, this we could talk about yeah. this all afternoon. Yeah, no, we, I can't. We better I move on. Anyway, um, tell us the title once again. It's Jimmy Savile, A British Horror Story, and that's on Netflix. Right all right, now. what else you got? Okay, let's talk about Tokyo Vice, which is a new drama series from HBO. I think the first couple of episodes are on there now. that dropped yesterday. I've only seen the first episode so far. But this is uh, an adaptation by Michael Mann, hmm. uh, who's the director of Heat, Collateral. Uh, he did uh, Black Hat, in, filmed in Hong Kong with Chris Hemsworth a, a few years ago. Yep. Uh, and also he was the, the creative mind behind Miami Vice both the TV show and the film back in the day. Yep. So he's always, you know, been ingrained in kind of uh, police and crime and, and this kind of, uh, in, this kind of intersection. So Tokyo Vice itself is a, a pretty famous book written by the journalist, Jake Edelstein, um, Adelstein, uh, about his time as a reporter working for uh, Japan's or certainly Tokyo's number one daily newspaper. Mm -hmm. Now, I rem I rem I've heard of this book, you know, over and over and over again. It's it's often raised as, you know, one of the defining uh, works about uh, the Japanese Yakuza, if you want to understand that, so, or one of the sort of ex ultimate expat in Asia experience kind of books. Let's welcome back Greg for a second, because he's a read Tokyo Vice while living in Tokyo. He says engrossing read. Well, Greg, whilst you're with us tell me anything extra that you think you got from it because you were there sorry james yeah yeah so it's always cited as one of the great books that any expat living in asia should read because mm -hmm. it really is about like the ultimate sort of deep dive into the culture in which you are surrounded by 
Um, and he, yeah, he he broke down a lot of barriers. He was the first Western journalist to get a job working at the Tokyo Tokyo Daily newspaper. He got on the police beat, and he developed a good sort of relationship with the Tokyo cops, and ended up sort of doing sort of long form investigation on on the yakuza. So here he's portrayed by Ansel Elgort, who people have seen most recently in the new version of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, other than that, it has a mostly Japanese cast, including Ken. Watanabe and Shun Sugata and uh, Kasuki Toyahara and a number of other sort of familiar faces, Hideaki Ito. Uh, you know, a number of if you if you watch any Japanese cinema at all, you know, there's a lot of familiar faces in there, both as cops, as journalists, as uh, as yakuza, what have you. And so far, I mean, the first episode is just really establishing the um, the depths to which Edelstein embraced Japanese culture. You know, there have been a number of movies about sort of white guy in Japan over the years. Uh, so Black Rain with Michael Douglas, um, The Yakuza with Robert Mitchum, even obviously You Only Live Twice, uh, James Bond, uh, you know, the novel of which everyone criticised Ian Fleming for essentially writing a sort of travelogue about Japan rather than a spy novel. Uh, you know, and sometimes these are done well and sometimes they're not done so well. And this one so far, as I said, I've only watched the first episode, is certainly thorough and it's certainly authentic. It, it feels a little bit clunky and a little bit kind of over the top. I mean, as somebody, and, you know, obviously I can speak to yourself a little bit here, as an expat has lived over in Asia for a long time, you don't really dive that deep into the into the local culture. Some people do, some people might, but most people tend to re- retain a certain degree of their, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, their, 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 their roots, whereas this guy goes all, goes all in. You know, he's studying Japanese nonstop. Uh, he's teaching English as well. He's uh, taking judo classes at night. He's living above a little uh, izakaya. And he, he even his little one-bedroom apartment is done up with tatami mats. And he's got all his, his books and comics aligned on the shelves just so. You know, in a way that... I don't believe no. a Westerner would, however, however deep he's going into the culture. But you know, this is this is TV, and it's shorthand for just telling an audience who have no or, or limited uh, understanding of any of this stuff. Uh, this guy's going all in, and okay. you're like, okay, fine. Well, it looks beautiful from the poster. The colours look amazing. If that's what, in fact, they do in the piece. Uh, yeah, I mean, so 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 far, it's. Um, it's it's certainly engaging. It's drawn me in. I'm going to keep going at least for the next couple of episodes. See how it goes. Yeah. Uh, it just is a little bit for people for people familiar with the setting. It's set in like 1999 in Tokyo. It's a little bit just heavy handed. It's just like kind of laying on the the culture shock element a little bit thick. But that you kind of expect that from something like this. You know, it is trying to appeal to a to a mainstream. Let's be honest, American audience. And uh, and so you've got to you've got to hold their hand a little bit. All right then. A couple more to go. What you got? Yeah. We're still on Facebook Live, and uh, Rachel Louise, hello. She says, have you seen Marvelous Mrs. Meisel on Amazon TV? I think you did ages ago, didn't you? Or, or maybe... Yeah, I did. I watched the first season. Yeah, the but I must, one. And I, I know they're on, like, the fourth season now, but I, I never went back to it. It was very good. What I saw of it was very good. She reckons it's one of the best things she's seen in a while. There you go. Thanks for telling us. Join us on Facebook Live. All right. Okay, so let's do Apollo 10 and a half, okay. which is a new film from uh, Richard Linklater who, of course, did Days to Confuse, Slacker, uh, the Before Trilogy, and uh, things like Waking Life and um, what's that? Uh, a Scanner Darkly. 
the Philip K. Dick novel that he adapted. And those about, and this is essentially a sort of semi-autobiographical uh, film about him growing up in suburban Texas at the same time, just outside of Houston at the same time of the uh, Apollo missions. He, of course, also directed Boyhood, which is probably the single most similar thing to this. You know, that was yeah. chronicling 12 years in the life of, of a young boy and his father uh, shot one piece at a time over 12 years. So here it's um, it uses the same kind of rotoscope style animation uh, as he's used before in Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly, where he shot it all live action, whether on location or in front of a green screen sometimes, and then is animated over the top of it. So it's got a kind of sort of rough, old-fashioned kind of animated look. By animated, you don't mean computer animated, do you? I, I, didn't I read somewhere that it was really done old school, this stuff? Oh, quite, but I think, it's, I think it is kind of done digitally, actually. I think there's a kind of just a software skin that you throw over the top of it, but I don't really know. I'll be honest, I don't really know. <sighs> Please feel free to. Uh, I look forward to your letters. Put it that way. Yeah. To tell me. Tell me why I'm wrong. Please fix it. Uh, it's narrated something. Yeah. It's narrated by Jack Black, oh, who yeah. of course worked with Linklater before in School of Rock and Bernie. Uh, and what it is really is it's a slice of life of 1960s suburban life. You know, so it's very much like Dazed and Confused in that regard. Uh, it's it's set in one of these sort of purpose-built suburbs that popped up around the NASA space uh center for its for its uh staff for its employees where they uh, all were all like moved in together into brand new houses on brand new streets with brand new malls that just at strip malls down the road uh and were kind of like forced to become a community and everybody's dad worked at nasa you know whether you know whether it was one of the astronauts or he was uh in admin or hr or, or what have you and then obviously our our focal point is 10-year-old is Stan, who played by Milo Coy, but voiced uh, retroactively by Jack Black, you know, as the adult version of him reminiscing about all of this, uh, who's, you know, trying to navigate being 10-year-old, 10, 10 years old. He's the youngest of some four or five kids. So he's experiencing 1960s uh, pop culture, filtered through his elder siblings so he learns about you know music and drugs and drinking and going out and movies and all the rest of it and he's absolutely fascinated with uh the apollo missions and there's a kind of parallel narrative that kind of goes on where he imagines that he has been secretly recruited to be the first man on space and so he's going through all the training and what have you so you get to see uh all the preparations that the astronaut would astronauts would take uh, in order to get to the moon but in a, in a kind of fantasized version of how a 10 year old would perceive it, mm. if that makes any sense. Um, and it's, it's okay. It's all right. I mean, it depends, I think what your frame of reference is to some degree. I mean, yes, everybody's been 10 years old and been obsessed with, I think space travel at one point or another, but it's, it's, a, it's another one of these slices of Americana, which don't really mean a great deal to me in the same way that I don't think boyhood really resonated with me as much as it did with other people. Uh, Licorice pizza from earlier this year, similarly, uh, which was Paul Thomas Anderson at his most Richard Linklater. Um, it, it's very much a Richard Linklater movie, but it's not the kind of Richard Linklater movie that I really respond to. So there's nothing, there's nothing objectively wrong with it, but just for me, it didn't really, uh, 
hit home quite as quite as uh is emotionally a, as perhaps it could is there a film out there that does take you back to that time in your life i'm just curious i can't think of one but is there one for you or well, the in-betweeners actually for me <laughs> what would it be for you well it's funny because it's not i'm not one of these people where i'm like it's american i don't understand no i mean what you know uh, like something like stand by me is is great you know and that's in it, you know that's going back to a slightly older period to the 1950s uh, but that's just you know a couple of kids living in the small town who venture off into the countryside on a on a sort of secret camping trip over the weekend to go see a dead body but obviously that's not what it's really about yeah, yeah. that that you know resonated a lot more strongly but was that because i saw it younger maybe you know, something ah. like the goonies something like the goonies is the kind of childhood movie i enjoy you know where it's kids going off on an adventure but then i saw it when i was like eight years old so is that why it resonates more strongly you know um i'm a grizzled old man now i don't I, I you know i can i can barely remember my childhood let alone uh, be right, stirred by be stirred by the nostalgic follies of Let's someone else. One more, shall we? What do you got? Okay, there's a little uh, independent Indonesian indie movie on Netflix right now called "Vengeance Is Mine." All others pay cash, which is adapted by Edwin, the writer director, from a very popular novel. I take it on good authority that it's a very popular novel by Ika Kurniawan. Uh, came out a few years ago, and this stars uh, Martino Leo as a guy called Ajo, and he's, uh, you know, sort of a little tough guy, small town enforcer, likes a rough and tumble, uh, growing up in, in sort of very macho 1980s Indonesia, you know, under the Suharto uh, militaristic authoritarian regime, which really heavily promoted, you know, the importance of being, you know, being a man and being masculine and all the rest of it. He has a very, not so very well-kept secret that he's impotent. He can't get it up, never has been able to. And so that's something of a problem and it kind of, you know, undermines his tough guy persona somewhat. Mm -hmm. He has a run-in with a female bodyguard called Itang, played by Ladja Sherrill, who's worked with Edwin before. Um, and, you know, he's trying to collect money off her boss and she's there to protect him. And they end up having a fight. They're very evenly matched. They beat each other up. And in that moment, they fall in love. Bring. And... He's like, well, you know, I've got a secret. And she's like, I don't care. You know, if you mean this, I mean this. Let's let's get together. So they fall in love. And it turns into a kind of revenge story where they, they you know, she it's kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde thing where she takes on the responsibility of his revenge when he's unable to continue it. Hmm. Uh, so what it does is it's, you know, on the one hand, it's this very low budget Indonesian rough around the edges indie movie uh and it's a and it's a romance and it's darkly humorous and it's an action movie it's got some decent fight scenes in it as well yep. uh but also it pays like homage homage to the great sort of 80s action movies that that is emulating that the characters were told to emulate there's political satire in there you know critical of the period but also co contemplating how that has had a lasting impact on Indonesia of today, you know, which has been a democracy for what, since the late nineties. Mm. And so for a lot of people, they can still remember those, uh, those old days and the hardships and the men and the mentality and to what extent they have got, they've got out of that mentality and that they have moved forward and they're able to embrace a more diversified uh, image of, of manhood and respect, you know, respectful fellow man and whatever it's it's deceptively interesting you know it's 
it appears that it's going to be just kind of this very sort of simple little indie uh, rom-com action movie. But there's a lot going on. And I actually, uh, I liked it more than I was expecting to. Vengeance is mine. All others pay cash. Nice one, James. Take care. See you next week.